Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby, a work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We are located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. Our phone number is 859-371-2095. You can also visit us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, that you may grow thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. My name is Greg Littmer. I am one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. And in this episode, we're going to continue our study of the significance of the 51st Psalm. It is one of the most popular and certainly one of the most famous of the Psalms, one which, unfortunately, I believe all should be able to identify with at some point in time. I believe, and the subtitle indicates, that it was written by David sometime after his sin with Bathsheba. We're not going to take the time to read it all in this episode, but I do want to read verses 3 through 10. Psalm 51 verses 3 through 10 tell us, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, I have sinned, and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak, and blameless when thou dost judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Then with the words, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. The rebuke of David begins. We'll turn now to Second Samuel chapter 12, where we will be reading verses 1 through 15. I want us to notice how Nathan makes this presentation, its contents and its approach. Learn how to deal with sin in the life of an individual who has refused to repent or apparently even acknowledge his sin. Here is the passage. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came in to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare it for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, 
It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick. Look at this incredible, eye-opening presentation. God, in harmony with his faithfulness to our free moral choice, has given David time to look at what he had done, to acknowledge his sin and come to him in repentance. But David hadn't done that. In fact, all evidence is that he had closed his eyes to the wickedness and hardened his heart toward God. The narrative indicates that almost nine months have gone by, and the time has come, as it inevitably does, for a confrontation with the truth. These circumstances call for preaching that can pierce David's heart with conviction and godly sorrow. God, the ever-seeking God, sends Nathan to rebuke the nation's king. What do you say in this type of situation? Nathan's masterful approach has four characteristics to it. First, it is inductive in arrangement, and here's what I mean. Nathan tells a story that will lead David to the conclusion that his sin should be punished. It will help him to accurately apply the principle of justice to someone else before he turns his eyes of judgment upon himself. Nathan's story is one of the most impressive inductive sermons to be found anywhere. Second, it is both intellectual and emotional in content. Nathan's words employ a sensible understanding of disobedience which is interlaced with a deeply touched appeal to the heart. David is drawn into the illustration and forced by its content to give the correct judgment of sinful actions with great emotion. Third, it is clear and unmistakable. With smoothness and precision, the story was told. David cannot help but follow the line of thought. The proper judgment that should be given stood out as clearly as the bright noonday sun. Fourth, and this is so important, it was personal in application. At its end, David found himself surrounded by a clear-cut verdict. This story of two men pushes him into the corner of reality, and there is no escape. No judge of any kind could circumvent lowering the same kind of judgment on this case. The outcome was unavoidable. When David announces what must be done in this matter of such gross wickedness, 
He looks up to see Nathan's finger pointing at him with his lips declaring, You are the man. David is the victim of faithful logic, of intellectual, emotional, and conscientious induction. He has arrived at the right conclusion. The hand of God's truth has fallen upon him, and he has no place to turn but to repentance. He will either fatally harden his heart or humble it in an honest way. The response to this mighty preaching is exactly what it should be. David said in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. There it is. He has tried to hide his sin. He has lied and he has committed murder, but he cannot escape the truth. What happens next? Surfacing in David's prayer are the various stages through which a person must pass as he recovers from the pain and anguish of sin. To begin the journey, he must accept personal responsibility for what he has done. Blame rests squarely upon him, the sinner, and not on others or on circumstances. The second stage is godly sorrow. The sinner has to come to the point of having a heart broken over his or her sin, a heart that truly grieves because God has been hurt by the transgression. He or she must have a sorrow toward God. The third requirement is repentance. Deep within, the sinner resolves to yield to God's will, whatever this might mean and wherever it might lead. His decision is both negative and positive, for he decisively turns from evil to God. For us today, there must be a confession of our faith. Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 tells us that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Then he or she must be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, placing them in Christ, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27, because baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. Next, forgiveness or cleansing has to be accepted. Grace is bestowed on the sinner by the Lord, but the sinner must receive it with trust and faith in its reality and fullness. One of the problems that sinners have is believing that God has forgiven them. Then he must live by the new heart, the joy, the renewed fellowship with God that he has been given. A new life is given, but it must be lived within the standards of the Lord. Our feet are placed upon the highway of holiness, but we must keep our feet on it. Let me add that a saved soul shows its gratitude by telling others what God has done for him or her. This pathway, when faithfully traveled, moves a person from the life of a vile sinner, defeated and lost, to the life of a forgiven person who is full of joy and back in fellowship with God. Now I want us all to understand something. When I describe the life of vile sinners as being defeated and lost, do I mean that during the time between his sin and Nathan's devastated story, that David was moping around, feeling terrible, recognizing the awfulness of what he had done? The answer to that question is no. People hardened their hearts engaging in sin so frequently that it touches their hearts or conscience no more. That is why people in the world so often seem so very happy. 
even as they engage in things that God considers sinful. That is why we see such rejoicing by so many over same-sex marriage. Why transgender people receive rewards for courage and gay athletes receive calls of congratulations from the President of the United States. There is a spiritual reality and that is what matters. And there is what we see in the world. Don't be deceived. In consideration of what we're talking about, let's consider godly sorrow. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, Paul wrote, For sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Any discussion of salvation must include godly sorrow. Without it, no one ever comes back to God. And we see in the 51st Psalm and all of the events that caused its writing. Godly sorrow declares my sins are first against God and second against man. Because God is righteous and the creator of all righteousness, any sin is first and foremost against him. However, my sin not only hurts God, it also hurts others and myself. Sin's destructive character isolates me from God and corrupts my relationship with the people around me, whether I know it or not. Godly sorrow constrains me to say that my sin exists because of choices I have made. The truth is, I was not coerced into my wickedness. I chose it. But my own decision, I turned away from God and embraced sin. And godly sorrow convinces me that my sin, from any viewpoint, cannot be excused. There is absolutely no real rationalization for my actions and I cannot blame anyone or any circumstances for them. Godly sorrow recognizes that I cannot remove sin, stain, and guilt. No one can forgive himself of sin. God has to do it. It won't just go away with the passing of time or maybe by my moving to a new location. Sin must be dealt with in God's way. And when I do, when I bring my sin to God according to his most fervent desire, what happens? My friends, he forgives them. The basic meaning of forgive is to send away sins. They are sent out never to be remembered. He cleanses them. Call it purging, purifying, pardoning. It is the same thought. The sinful soul is dirty and polluted with evil. When forgiven, we glisten with the whiteness of souls that have been washed and made pure by God's grace evidence through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, which tells us, Come now, and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. God blots our sins out. Think of a chalkboard that has been covered with words and figures. It is messy and in need of complete erasure so that the student can have a clean place to write. When God removes our sins, he expunges them from our records. Never again will they be listed beside our names. I want to try to make this real in our lives. To make us see sin as God sees it and not as the world sees it. Satan must not, he cannot win in our lives and not in the lives of our children. I hope this has proven to be helpful. The beautiful 51st Psalm. Thanks for listening.